22 through 4, chapter 1, I mean, verse 1. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you have two, you too have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. We have uh, been going through a series on the New Testament in the New Testament letter to the Colossians. It was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century, and uh, the the main idea or the main point of this letter is really found in verse 18 of chapter 1, which we've reflected on over the last couple of weeks, where Paul says that Jesus is now in the position of being preeminent in all things. He has first place in all things. In all reality, Jesus has first place. And what Paul is indicating through this entire letter is this, tr- is this great, massive, cosmic truth that the gospel is, is really, it's more, some of us have grown up in the church or been Christians for quite some time, um, and we tend to, at least for myself, I think we tend to limit the idea of the gospel to something that is between myself and Jesus. It's very personal and individual, and that's true. Uh, That's a a profound truth of the gospel, but one of Paul's main points in this book is that the gospel is more than that. The gospel is more than uh, just about you and Jesus. Um, He's making the point, he's, he's articulating and communicating the great truth claim that Jesus is Lord over everything. There's no aspect of your life, of my life, that is off limits to Jesus. Um, And we are at a point in the letter, now towards the end, uh, the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, in which we're going to be looking at some of the the places in our life in which Jesus is Lord over, Uh, some of the areas of our life in which he commands sovereignty, um, which can be, at times, I think a little intimidating for us, But also, I think on the flip side, also very comforting that Jesus cares about the things in our life that are mundane, ordinary, uh, some of the places where we struggle and feel anxiety and worry and fear. Jesus cares about all of those things. Uh, He is Lord over, as as we'll find out in the next coming weeks, over your bedroom. He's Lord over your family room. He's Lord over your neighborhood. He's Lord over your office. He's Lord over your classroom. He's Lord over wherever you work, wherever the, the spaces that you inhabit and live. And what, and what Paul is articulating in, in the end of Colossians is what, when that gospel, when the reality that Jesus is not only the rescuer, but also the king and the Lord over every aspect of your life, when that gets a hold of you, There's nothing in your life that can stay the same. Everything must change. Everything must change. And so today, we're going to be focusing on, I think, an aspect of our life that 
I think ordinarily is difficult for us to connect to uh, the reality of Jesus, who Jesus is, his person and work. And that's, uh, that's the sphere of work, uh, the office, the home, the classroom, the laboratory, the job site. Dorothy Sayers was a crime writer. She was a poet. She was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, who some of you may know. And in an essay that she wrote uh, many years ago uh, entitled, Why Work?, she says this. She says, In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of a person's life? You see what she's saying? She's saying, and uh, she's, she's criticizing, she's critiquing the church and pastors like me uh, for not respecting what most of you, all of you, are doing with nine-tenths of your life from Monday to Friday, engaged in vocations, in callings in this world, wherever, whatever it is, wherever it is. Uh, Dorothy Sayers is saying, how can someone actually be interested in a religion, in a truth claim that doesn't have any relevance for anything apart from Sunday morning or from Wednesday evening small group? That's what she's saying. And that's a, it's a startling claim, and I think it's actually true. I think uh, for the most part, the church has, on the whole, not done a good job of discipling people in their work, in their vocation, in how to pursue their work with excellence and integrity, and how to connect the cosmic, grandiose claims of the gospel with what we do Monday through Friday. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping uh, we will be able to think about and consider this morning together. This is where we spend a majority of our time, our efforts, our energy, our thinking. And if Christianity has nothing to say to that big area of our life, then I would, I would, I would, agree, with, uh, I would agree with Dorothy Sayers and say that it, then that would be largely irrelevant. It would be a waste of our time. But I think it does, and that, that's what Paul's... The, the case that Paul is making in the end of chapter 3 and beginning in chapter 4 in Colossians is that Christianity has a lot to say about our work. It has a lot to say about what Dorothy Sayers calls the secular vocation. So I want to explore that under three uh, headings this morning. So three headings. First, the new account that Paul in Colossians, he gives us a new account for work, a new account for work. Second, he gives us a new aim of work. And third, he gives us a new audience in our work. So a new account for work, a new aim of work, and a new audience in work. A new account for work. We all live by certain accounts or narratives or stories, ways that we understand uh, the world, ways that we uh, make meaning of the things that are happening in our life. And there are a number of cultural stories, cultural accounts, of, of how work fits into our life. I was reflecting on that uh, over the last couple weeks, and a couple, of, uh, a couple of stories came to mind. I'll see if they resonate. The first is, if you're a fan of um, Pixar films, which by now you all know that I am, uh, in that very clever, it's almost a social commentary, the movie WALL-E uh, that came out a number of years ago about 
a robot who, is, uh, who lives on Earth, and his job is to basically organize and collect trash on sort of this post-apocalyptic uh, planet Earth. And as he's moving around trash and picking up things and tasked with this sort of endless job of cleaning up these heaps of garbage, he meets this new robot named Eve, um, sort of almost reminiscent of kind of the, the biblical story of creation. Uh, and as he meets Eve, he's sort of, Wally and Eve sort of develop this relationship. It's sort of a, a kind of a love relationship. And they find themselves transported off Earth and into this space station in which you get a glimpse of the, human, the humans who are not, no longer living on Earth, but living in outer space on a space station waiting for robots like Wally and Eve to, um, to basically uh, uh, remake the world and make it inhabitable again. And the, the picture that you get of the humans are people that are basically do-nothings. Uh, they sit around on these moving chairs uh, drinking like large amounts of soda with screens right in front of them, basically just clicking buttons. And it's this picture of kind of this grotesque, uh, dehumanized, repulsive existence. Now, why do I bring that up? Uh, one, because it's a Pixar movie, and that's what I rely on to make sermon illustrations. But it's, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a cultural story about how our culture perceives work. See, on the one hand, I think many of us would say, man, a life of leisure, where we're sitting in front of a screen all day and consuming calories and taking it easy, uh, is actually very much appealing. I just spent the last week with my family in Palm Springs by the pool, and it was very enjoyable. I could easily see myself doing that for a large amount of time. Um, right? So, but there's this, there's this cultural story in... in woven into our culture that a life of total leisure is actually very appealing, but the, the point that the movie is making is that actually that's repulsive and dehumanizing. Uh, so there's a tendency on the one hand for us to, uh, to underwork, to value leisure to the point where it consumes our life. But on the other hand, and I think my perception living in Orange County for all of six months is that maybe we tend towards not underwork, but maybe overwork. Uh, I, I read an article that I had saved a number of years ago by Aaron Callen, who was the CFO of Lehman Brothers. And in an op-ed piece that she wrote for the New York Times several years ago, she says this. She says, I didn't start out with the goal of devoting all of myself to my job. It crept in over time. Each year that went by, slight modifications became the new normal. First, I spent an, a half an hour on Sunday organizing my email, to-do list, and calendar to make Monday morning easier. Then I was working a few hours on Sunday, then all day. My boundaries slipped away until work was all that was left. Inevitably, when I left my job, it devastated me. I couldn't just rally and move on. I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. You see what she's saying? Uh, High-powered CFO. Uh, she's saying that her identity was so connected, her life so was consumed by her work that when her, her job was over, when she left her position, it was hard for her to even figure out who she was. Did she even have an identity? 
Uh, see, on the one hand, we're, some of us are attracted to this idea of this total leisure, this idea of underwork, where it would be more fun to play all day and do no work. And then on the other hand, there are some of us here who so value work uh, that we find ourselves, like Aaron Callan did, um, consumed by our work. It, it consumes all of our, it eliminates the boundaries of our life such that our life ends up becoming destructive and harmful to ourself and to other people. Those are some of the cultural stories of work, I think almost best captured in the 1999 film Office Space where the main, um, the main character, Pete Gibbons, says, human beings were not meant to sit in little cubicles stand, staring at computer screens all day, filling out useless forms and listening to eight different bosses drone on about mission statements. I love that. I love that quote. It sort of captures, I think, where many of us live a majority, nine-tenths of our life. What's the Bible story about work? What's the Bible story about work? It's, it's entirely countercultural. First, a couple things that the Bible says work is not. Work is not a curse. Work is not a curse. The Bible, from beginning to end, gives value and dignity to our work. In fact, in the opening pages of Scripture in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, God himself is described as a worker. He's described as someone who gets his hands dirty in the soil of the earth. And through his planning and strategy and vision casting, manages and constructs and builds the entirety of creation. It's profoundly moving that the God of the Bible is, in some sense, both a blue-collar worker who gets his hands dirty, but also a, a, a white-collar executive who plans and articulates and communicates and manages. That's the God of the Bible, and that's, I think, what maybe Paul has in the back of his mind as he's addressing both individuals who are engaged in what, in some respects, was blue-collar work and, in some respects, was white-collar work. Work is not a curse. All work has dignity. Paul is addressing both slaves and masters. He's saying their work is valuable. Second, work is not a means to an end. Work is not a means to an end. It's not a, a sort of a necessary evil to provide for something uh, else. So let me ask you, why are you at your job right now? Why are you at your job? I imagine for many of us, the answer may be, because of, the, because of the position, because of the salary, because of the benefits, because it gets me uh, where I want to eventually be sometime down the road. Work, but work is not a means to an end. Work is not a necessary evil. So what is it? What is work? Well, throughout the Old and New Testament, we see a theme that work is actually joining with God. It's partnering with God. It's interesting in Colossians 1, in chapter 1, there's this language that Paul uses where he talks about the gospel going out into the world and he says that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And he says that believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, are also in all of their vocations, not just ministry-related, not just church-related, but in all of their vocations, they are bearing fruit and growing. And that's a reference that Paul is making back to the opening pages of Genesis in which God gives both Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, the mandate to bear fruit, to grow, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to govern it, 
uh, to, be, to steward it so that it could prosper and flourish. Work is a joining. It's a partnering with God. Have you ever had the experience of someone that you respected or admired come to you and say, I want you to come work with me. I want you to come and join my organization. It's a profoundly moving experience. When someone that you deeply respect, you deeply admire, you deeply trust says to you, come, I want you to join me on this project. I want you to work alongside me. Do you realize that the creator, the God of heaven and earth has come to you all and has said to you, would you come and join me? Would you come and make this world a better place, a more beautiful place, a place of flourishing for not only the earth, but also our neighbors? Work is joining with God. And work is also, going to work is also your Christianity. Going to work is your Christianity. What do I mean by that? Look at, look at if you have your Bibles, uh, it's, if, if you don't have a Bible, we've printed the text for you, uh, which is it's difficult to see, but if you have your Bibles, uh, you see that there's, in chapter 3, there's no division. When Paul is talking about what it means to have a heavenly-minded, spirit-filled life, a life where you're growing as a disciple of Jesus, there's no division, there's no break between verse 17 where Paul is talking about what we ordinarily perceive as Christian virtues and values, uh, living in community, being thankful, letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us, teaching each other, admonishing one, earth, one another, singing praises. There's no division between that and him talking about our work in the world. And what I take from that is that Paul is saying that your work, your work in the world, whatever it is, is sacred. Uh, during the European Reformation in the 16th century, there were, um, uh, uh, through individuals like Martin Luther, there were a number of truths about the Christian faith that were recovered and articulated in a fresh, uh, in a fresh and new way. And one of the ways that I think many, at least in the Protestant church, are familiar with is that uh, one of the truths that the Reformation recovered was this idea that we, um, we are justified, we're made right with God only through the righteousness of Jesus, that Jesus has given us his righteousness and we've given him our sin, and that is the only thing that makes us right with God uh, through faith. But another reality, another great truth that the Reformation recovered and uncovered and articulated in ways that changed the world was this concept. It was called the idea of the priesthood of all believers. See, when individuals like Martin Luther were thinking, were reading Scripture, and are trying to articulate Christianity in their time, what they came to understand was for many years what the church had done was say, these are the things that you can be involved with, ministry in the church, being a priest or a pastor in the church, uh, serving, using your gifts in the church, which are all good things. Uh, but they tended to elevate those callings, tended to elevate that work as being more important, more significant than uh, the work of the farmer, the work of the laborer, 
the work of the stonemason, the work of the milkmaid. And what Martin Luther and people like him said was no, that throughout the Old and New Testament, what you see is God values all work, that there is a priesthood of all believers. And they recovered that truth and it changed the world. It gave meaning and dignity and value to all kinds of work that, that up until that point had no dignity, had no value. Uh, people didn't view them as respectable vocations. So when you think about your Christianity, is this the way you think about it? That what if, what if a spirit-filled, heavenly-minded life, the kind of life that wants to model and reflect Jesus, might just look like, how can I be the best manager? How can I be the best photographer? How can I be the best electrician, the best data analyst, the best teacher, the best doctor, the best attorney, the best web developer? What Paul is saying is this is your Christianity. This is where you are modeling and reflecting the life of Jesus, the heavenly mindedness that is deeply involved with the matters of this world. Jesus himself was both blue-collar and white-collar. He was a carpenter, and he was a rabbi. And Dorothy Sayers says this about Jesus. She says, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of that carpenter's shop at Nazareth. She's saying that this idea that that our work is sacred, that our work is valuable and has dignity and worth, should inspire us to be excellent workers to be excellent in our fields, to be spirit-filled and heavenly-minded in the mundane, ordinary places that we live out our lives. That's a new account for work. It's a new story of work. It's something that, that changed the fabric of Europe and changed the direction of culture. That's a new account of work. But there's also a new aim of work. What do I mean by that? There's a new aim of work. That when the gospel comes into a person's life, what it does is it shapes their values. It shapes the way in which they engage their work. But before I get into that, there's there's an issue. If if we're going to talk about the way that the gospel shapes our values and our ethics and our morality as we engage in work, then we must deal with a problem that at least when I come to texts like this, I grapple over, and I did again this week. This idea of, uh, in the midst of Paul talking about work, he's talking about the relationship between slaves and masters. This idea that, does the Bible condone slavery? Is the Bible giving justification uh, for slavery? This is probably not, the perfect answer to this question, but this is where, in my mind, as I've wrestled with this, this is one of the questions that bothers me when I come to the pages of Scripture. It, I wrestle with this, and this is, where I've, this is where I've landed. This is what's helped me, and I hope it helps um, someone here this morning. Does the Bible actually condone slavery? Well, first you have to understand sort of the cultural, historical background of the ancient world, and particularly Greco-Roman society. See, The slavery that existed in ancient Rome was was almost entirely different than the slavery that many of us have grown up learning about 
as it relates to this country, uh, as it relates especially to the American South. Slavery in Greco-Roman culture was, first of all, it was not race-based. It wasn't directed towards a particular ethnicity or race. Uh, It was also not permanent. It was not something that was lifelong. Uh, Usually slaves were slaves of their masters for 10, 15, 20 years, and then they were released and won their freedom. Uh, Slaves in Greco-Roman culture typically also were not um, kidnapped. They were not stolen from their places of origin and brought into slavery. Slaves also in ancient Rome had rights. Uh, They had individual rights. They could, in fact, take their masters to court and press charges. Um, They could also own property. In fact, Many, many slaves not only owned property, but they owned other slaves. So there were great differences between, I think, the slavery that it immediately kind of comes into our mind as sort of 21st century Americans and the slavery that Paul is talking about in Colossians. Now, that may not help some of you. You may say, I, I don't care, but I just want to point that out. There are differences. See, Paul is neither condoning nor criticizing slavery in his setting. But he's calling people to what the implications of the gospel look like on Monday morning. This was a letter that was probably read to a group of followers of Jesus on a Sunday where they were all gathered together and addressed. And what Paul is saying, what he has in his mind is, I want to show you what the implications of the gospel look like tomorrow Monday morning when you get on the job site. So Paul is not, he's, and he rarely does this, he rarely seeks to abstract and sort of address philosophical and social issues of the day. His theology is always grounded in experience. He's trying to address the needs and concerns of the people in the community to which he's speaking. So Paul is neither condoning nor criticizing the instance of the, the institution, rather, of slavery. So that may help some of you again, but it may not help some of you. My question is always, why doesn't the New Testament just come out and condemn this institution? If the New Testament is so radical, why doesn't it just come out and condemn slavery altogether? Well, in fact, the New Testament does have, a, it's, it, it takes a radical shift. There's a radical change when it comes to the New Testament, and it's in its addressing of this issue of slavery. First, Paul is using this formula in the end of the letter that was found in a number of Greco-Roman writers of the time where um, uh, teachers of virtue or philosophers would write what is called a household code where they would address people in a household, Uh, perhaps a husband, a wife, maybe children, maybe uh, um, different people within the household, and based on the household codes that scholars have uncovered, typically none of those household codes ever addressed slaves. You would never address a slave, but Paul does. Paul in Ephesians and Colossians, he addresses slaves in particular as a a group, as people. See, Paul views them as responsible, moral agents, dignified. He gives them the dignity uh, and the worth of addressing them, of communicating directly to them, which was unusual, was unique in the culture of 
uh, the Roman Empire. Secondly, notice what Paul does in chapter 4. He says, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Do you know how radical that is? To call, to say to a master, to say to someone who had um, a high social class, that they themselves had a master above them in a culture that was rigidly based on hierarchical class, that was unique. It was profound. It was never done before. Um, the Roman philosopher Seneca, in some of his writings, he, he tells masters to relate to their slaves as enemies. He says that masters should relate to their slaves as enemies. Aristotle, the great philosopher, said that slaves were born into slavery because that was their destiny. That was what they were made for. And Paul comes along and says, no, masters, treat your slaves with justice. Treat them with equity. New Testament um, scholar Murray Harris, he has this book on, um, which addresses this issue of slavery in the New Testament. And he says, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the things that has helped me as I think about slavery in, in the Bible. He says that the very reason that we react so strongly as a culture to the idea, to the institution of slavery, the, the reason why we see this as a great moral wrong and injustice is because of Christianity. That in the New Testament, in the teachings of, the, of Jesus and the apostles, what we find there is the seeds which led to the destruction of the institution of slavery in the modern world. So the very reason that we're able to come to a text like Colossians and say, well, what about slavery? Isn't that wrong? Isn't the Bible condoning it? The very reason that we would have that question in the first place is because of Christianity. Because Christianity, uh, it, 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 it's, it planted the seeds for the eventual destruction of slavery. Finally, on this, on this last point, Paul is, what he's doing in this passage and what he's done throughout Colossians is he's calling us into a relationship. He's calling us into a relationship with Jesus. He's not abstracting on a social or, or, or political or philosophical issue, but what he is saying is, you need to be in relationship with this Jesus who is God. It's like uh, the relationship that I have with my wife. If that relationship, it's first and foremost a, a relationship of love and affection and intimacy. It's not primarily a relationship where we handle business and finances and other issues that may arise in the relationship. If it were that, it would fall apart. What Paul is doing is saying, look, if Jesus is God, then come into a relationship with him. Be united to him. And in turn, all of these other things, philosophical, social, political, will be part of that relationship to him. Does that make sense? That when I, when I, come, to, when I come to my wife, it's not primarily a relationship of business or politics or things that are going on, but it's primarily a relationship of uh, of. of intimacy, of affection, of love, and that gives shape to all of the other decisions that we make. Paul is saying when you're united to Jesus, 
who is the God of the universe, the, the, the one who made people, everyone with value and dignity and worth, that will shape your way of seeing your work, who you work with, uh, the things in our society that are, um, that are out of whack, that are incorrect, that need fixing. That's my best shot at trying to articulate why Paul is addressing slaves and masters. So what is this aim of work? How does the gospel apps, sort of actually shape our, va- our virtues, our values, our morality? Well, I think the Bible doesn't give us a comprehensive list of do's and don'ts. But it does give us, as I was just saying, Jesus. It does present to us this bright, vibrant, living, transformational, powerful center of our lives, Jesus, through which as we look at him, as we gaze at him, it begins to shape every facet of our life. What does that look like? Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, he, um, he's shared this story before, and I've heard it, and it's profoundly moving, and so I share it with you. It's the story of um, a, a young woman who was sort of in the early days of Redeemer in New York, was coming into their services and uh, was participating in the service and then leaving very quickly. And uh, one morning, um, Keller was able to intercept her on her way out and asked, um, you know, why are you here? Get, get, he got to know her a little bit, and she was indicated that she was exploring Christianity. Uh, wasn't completely there yet, but she was interested in the Christian faith and interested as to what the church taught. And as he began to press more into her life, he found out that she worked for um, a a profitable organization in Manhattan. And she had taken this position, and early on, she had made um, a mistake uh, that cost the company um, a lot of money, uh, that cost them a lot of... uh, um, uh, it, it, It really harmed her job, and she was actually in danger of losing the position. Uh, and her, her immediate boss, um, what he did was profound. What he did was actually he went to her supervisors, and he took all the blame. He took the blame for the error that she had made, and it cost him um, some of his reputation within the company, some of his ability to maneuver uh, within the company. And she, she went to uh, her boss and, and was curious about this. You know, she had... Uh, as she indicated to Keller, she had, she had been in positions before where people would take credit for the work that she had done, but she had never been in a position where she had made a mistake and somebody had taken the blame for her. And she began to press her boss as to why, why he would do something like that. And he was, uh, he, you know, sort of first sort of deflected the question and pushed it off, but as she persisted, uh, this is what he said as she summarized it. She, she said, this is what her boss said, I am a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross, and that is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. And you know what she said to her boss as soon as he, he said, she said, where in the world do you go to church? See, this is, this, this is how the gospel shapes our values. We begin to see our work 
and our way of living in the world as shaped by the cross, as shaped by the resurrection, as people who are shaped by the life and the person of Jesus Christ. We begin to be the kinds of people who might take the blame for others' wrongdoing. It also, how does the, how does the gospel, how does, how does Jesus shape our, our, the aims of our work? It also gives us an inner poise, an inner confidence in the face of failure and difficulty. Uh, look who Paul is talking to. He's talking to not only masters, but also slaves, uh, people who were treated unjustly, who were treated unfairly, who were criticized harshly when they made mistakes. And Paul is giving to them a Jesus who says to them, you don't need the qualifications of your superiors. You don't need the approval of your colleagues. You don't need the accolades of all the people around you. You, ha- you are already qualified. That's what he said in chapter 1. You are already qualified in Jesus. You already have all the accolades, all the wealth, all the riches of Jesus. And that can give you an inner poise, an inner confidence in the face of difficulty and failure and frustration at work. Third, what the gospel does is it gives us an aim that is a healthy balance between a public faith and partnering with people who don't believe the same way we do. I think there's a tendency in our work, at least as I communicate with Christians in different fields, I find that people gravitate towards one of two poles. They're either... Um, extremely public with their faith and they tend to belittle people who don't believe and behave the same way they do or they tend to hide their faith in an effort to advance and move up in the company. And what I think Paul is calling us to is a Christianity that is both public with our faith but at the same time recognizes that everyone, slave or master, employer or employee, are made in the image of God and have the ability to work with excellence and competency and skill. And we should value that and recognize that and encourage that. Fourth, uh, we are called to work that's characterized by competence and service. By competence and service. Look at what Paul is, is, is calling us to. He's saying to work heartily, work sincerely, as for the Lord and not for men. He's calling to us work that is excellent. Work that is competent, the greatest, one of the greatest goods that you can give your neighbor and your community is to work with competence in whatever field that you're involved with. Don't you love when you take your car to a mechanic and the mechanic is able to diagnose and fix your car at a reasonable price? Don't you love going to a restaurant and a chef prepares a meal that's a delight and a joy? Don't you love... Um, seeing your kids go to school and having a teacher that goes the extra mile to offer support and encouragement. Jesus is calling us to work that is excellent, that is competent, that is skillful, that's based on service. That's why I love going to Chick-fil-A. If the pastor thing never works out for me, I'm going to Chick-fil-A because I, what do they always say to you? Every time you ask them something, my pleasure, that's my pleasure. Wherever we work, whatever our calling, our responsibility and role is to be in the service industry of others. To say, my pleasure. To work as before the face of Jesus. How do you do that in a way that puts Jesus first? That makes Jesus preeminent over all things? 
Cornelius Plantinga is um, he's the president of a seminary. He's a theologian. He's written a, a wonderful little book on vocation in which he asks this question. How do, you, how do you pursue a career, a calling, a vocation that puts Jesus first? And he doesn't give an answer, but he does give a number of questions. Let me read them to you. He says this. How do you choose a career that puts Jesus first? Ask these questions. Where in the kingdom does God want me to work? Where are the needs great? Where are the workers few? Where are the temptations manageable? With whom would I work? How honest is the work I'm thinking of doing? How necessary and healthy are the goods or services I would help provide? How smoothly could I combine my career with being a spouse, if that's also my calling, or a parent, or a faithful child of aging parents? How close would I be to a church in which I could give and take nourishment? Is my career inside a system that's so corrupt that even with the best intentions, I would end up absorbing a lot more evil than I conquer? And then finally, what would my career do for the least of these? What would my career do for the least of these? That's what it means to have the aim of our work shaped by Jesus and his kingdom, to put him first in our labors. Well, Paul also gives us a new audience in our work, and this is the last point. Paul gives us a new audience in our work. See, I think many of us are characterized by two extremes. Uh, On the one hand, uh, for some of us, our work is characterized by the people that we work for. And sometimes those people are jerks. Uh, Sometimes they are ruthless. Sometimes they are unfair. And for for others of us, our work is not so much characterized by who we work for, But our work is characterized by the accolades and the achievements that we're hoping to get people to see and approve of. So where are you this morning? Are you you in your work working for someone who is ruthless, who is critical, who is unfair? Or are you the kind of person who is so absorbed in your work? so looking for the approval and the accolades of others that you're performing for people to see. Paul gives a solution that addresses actually both of those. He says, you need to see work as overseen and empowered and ennobled by Jesus, the better master. You need a work that is filled with the master Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like? The master, the master in heaven that Jesus is ta- that Paul is talking about here, Jesus, is one who relativizes all class and power dynamics. He's the one that says wherever you are, every job has dignity, every vocation has worth, every position is valuable, and no position makes you more likely to be a recipient of grace, employer or employee, blue collar, white collar. Jesus relativizes all class and power dynamics. Secondly, Jesus rewards those with, that work for him with an inheritance that is imperishable. It cannot be touched. It is eternal. What does that mean? Well, as I was, as I was thinking about this, think about what Paul is saying. He's saying, 
work for the Lord to receive an inheritance as your reward? Is Paul saying, uh, do something so that you'll get something in return? Not exactly, because what is an inheritance? An inheritance is something that's given freely. Paul is saying, look, work for the Lord because you are the recipient of something free, of a treasure that's lasting and permanent, that cannot be touched or taken away, of a position where you cannot be demoted. He rewards those who serve him with that kind of inheritance, not based on performance, but on divine generosity. And lastly, Jesus is the master. He's the employer. He's the boss who can give you the, give you the rest, give you the, the thing that your heart is ultimately after. When you're in a job where you're struggling with the people who are above you, where you're in a job where you're just performing and performing and performing, trying to get the award, trying to get people's approval. Jesus is the master. who will, He's the only one who will give you what your heart is after in both of those circumstances. There's this story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Um, one of the patriarchs of Israel, Jacob. And Jacob was a young man. And he went to, uh, he left his home and went to work for his uncle. And um, as, he, uh, as he was uh, working for his uncle, one, one of the reasons he began working for his uncle was to marry uh, one, of his, one of his uncle's daughters, Rachel. And he made this agreement with his uncle that he would work for seven years. And then uh, as payment for that work, he would receive... Um, Laban's daughter Rachel as his as his as his payment, and so he worked for seven years. And, may, and maybe as some of you know, after those seven years, he was deceived by his uncle Laban, and he was given uh, the daughter Leah, which which nobody wanted. Uh, nobody was interested in Leah. And uh, so there's this. They they go back and forth, and 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 Jacob is 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 angry at his his uncle. And his uncle says, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you work another seven years, and, and then you can have Rachel? And Jacob agrees to the terms. And this, this interesting, profound little verse tucked away in Genesis chapter 28, where it says that Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. He worked for seven years, and they just seemed like a few days because of his love for Rachel. How do, you, how, do you go in, how do you hit Monday morning and go into a job and have it be the kind of thing where it feels like you're, you're just working a few days? It's like nothing. The way that you do that is you see Jesus as the better master. You see him as the one who, like Jacob saw Rachel, Jesus saw you. He left his throne. He worked his entire life. The writer of the Hebrews says he endured the cross for the joy set before him, and the joy was you. You were Jesus' Rachel. You were the thing that he was working for, and it, it seemed like only a small thing to him because of the joy that was set before him, the reward that he knew that he would receive, and you are that reward. You are that achievement. You are that accomplishment. See, you'll never stop auditioning for the approval of colleagues. 
or the accolades of supervisors until your heart receives that from Jesus, that you are his Rachel, that you are the one that he loves, you are the one that he worked for. And when you receive that, you'll know what it's like to work for the better master, the true and better master who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the master in heaven who shows no favoritism or partiality, who says that we are valuable and have dignity and worth just because we are made in the image of God. We thank you that you are the one who came not only as a carpenter but also as a rabbi, uh, the one who worked his entire life for the joy that was set before him. We thank you that you are that joy, that we can come into your presence and receive um, not just the rest that you offer our souls, but the announcement that your work is finished, it's complete, and it's perfect. We thank you for that, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.